All right, we're live. So welcome to the 92nd installment of the Plain and Win podcast series. Uh, it's been a few weeks since I've done one of these, and I've got an awesome guest today. His name is Nicholas, and he has a YouTube channel by the name of Physionics. Physionics, sorry. How you doing, Nick? Doing fantastic. So um, I tripped across you because you called in on one of my Unplugged Alpha podcast ones when I was talking about um, some topics around, uh, I guess, biohacking sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the uh, depth of your knowledge when you were chiming in on some ideas and subscribed to your channel, watched a bunch of your stuff. Uh, congratulations on your success. Looks like you've got over 100,000 subs now. Uh, this is kind of a part-time gig for you, right? Yeah, it's a part-time gig at the moment, but I'm, once I graduate, I'd like to make it a full-time thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are you doing on the day job side of things? Because you've got a list of credentials on the about page of your uh, YouTube channel. And you mostly talk about kind of one of the things that I'm super interested on the side that I don't spend too much time on, which is like anti-aging and, you know, dealing with blood labs and studies and all that sort of stuff. And you kind of distill a lot of these studies, but your day job, can you kind of explain to our audience what it is that you do? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm currently finishing my uh, PhD in molecular medicine. So I, I've been uh, I've been doing lab work for the last almost ten years now. I suppose it's been almost exactly ten years. So I entered the lab at uh, twenty four as kind of an intern, and then just kind of grew from there. Did uh, my master or did a little bit of undergraduate work where I was still working in the lab, and then I did my masters in uh, exercise physiology, and then from there. I uh, did, now I'm in my final year, final like eight months or so of my PhD where, you know, again, for another additional five years or so, I've been doing lab work. So that's uh, that's been my my day job uh, up to this point. But Physionic, as you pointed out, uh, Physionic really grew this year substantially to the point where hopefully I can, I can make that kind of a follow the rich footsteps in, in certain regards and, and be an entrepreneur of sorts. Yeah. And I want you guys to go subscribe to his channel. If you enjoy this podcast, it, it's linked in the title. You can just click Physionic and it'll take you to his YouTube channel. Um, yeah. Let's talk about YouTube for a minute before we sort of get into your level of expertise. How did you, like, how did you find that? I know it's a grind for most people, like the vast majority of channels that start up, they never really go anywhere. They'll upload videos. They sort of abandon it after a while. Um, you put a lot of editing into your videos. I can tell by the amount of work that's into the presentation and you know the b-roll and all the slides and all that sort of stuff that pops up that must take quite a bit of time um how did you how did you push on through and like, like there's times where you would hit upload and publish and then it would be crickets for the most part i've said this before like for for a while you'll do that and you hit refresh and it's like every refresh is your view or maybe you send it to your mom and she watches it and it's like those are your views but can you talk about like the startup of the channel and how you push through on that yeah definitely uh i was 24 um, I just finished my degree in psychology, and then it was after my degree that I realized that I didn't want to do psychology, which was uh, <laughs> unfortunate for me. But I, I gravitated towards doing, just wanting to learn. I was obsessed with learning about how the body works. And I kept going to my professors after I went back to school um, for, for physiology. And I kept asking them, I was pestering them just constantly. So eventually it just kind of hit me, I, you know, because I love learning so much, I'm doing so much stuff outside of the classroom. I decided to uh, start a channel and just kind of start posting whatever I was learning. Uh, so I told myself every week uh, I had to post a video. And uh, for nine and a half years, I posted one video every single, or at least one, one video for uh, the last nine and a half years. And like you said, for the last, I think it was six, seven years, it was absolutely nothing I, I which is completely my fault i should have uh, i should have worked on you know tweaking different things but i was stubborn and young and an idiot so uh, i just continued to do the same thing and and got the same results and then eventually my stubbornness gave way to uh, my desire to actually want to grow the channel so uh, i eventually started taking courses i invested in in buying some courses and got some consultations and learned how to, to grow a YouTube channel. And then, uh, then it sort of grew for a little bit, you know, the last two, about two years ago, it was growing a little bit. And, uh, then this year it really just took off. Uh, I think only because I, I really started to become a lot more malleable about how I go about things. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Like eight years is a long grind. I see when I sort the channel by uh, age, your thousand plus subscriber video was five years ago. <laughs> and I think prior to that, you looks like you had like 15 to 20 uploads and you've certainly grown as a man since then. You've, <laughs> you've your luck, I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were talking about the same stuff back then. It's like, you know, people always go on about how, oh, you know, it must be nice or, you know, it's probably just an overnight success. Well, this is what an overnight success looks like over eight years, if you guys want to take a look at it. So, you know, thanks for sharing that, uh, you know, part of your sort of Batman origin story. Sure. Uh, what does the name physionic mean? Like, what is... Yeah, so physionic is uh, is it's a it's a bit of a selfish origin, but it's also based on what I actually study. So um, my degree is in molecular medicine, but the subtract that I'm in is in physiology, cell physiology, mm. and um, physiology is just it's it's everything. It's it's everything related to biology. So um, it's maybe not. It, when you take courses, you take anatomy and physiology. I'm not as interested in the anatomy side. So I wanted to learn everything about physiology. It applies to, you know, cancer, cardiovascular disease. I mean, everything that you can possibly think of is physiology. So I just took physio, which is the, the root word, and then just stuck my name on there, NIC, just uh, stuck it together and Physionic was born. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into some of the uh, content and some of the like areas of your expertise. Um, I made some notes here and put down some subheadings. Some of these are, uh, I think, going to be of extreme interest to my viewers around, um, you know, just becoming better versions of themselves overall. Um, I noticed that a lot of the videos in recent uploads have been around anti-aging. Um, it looks like most of your videos are sort of like taking studies, breaking them down, and then summarizing them and making it a little more palatable for the average guy to watch. Um, why don't we do this? What's what is sold to the public for the most part that is a hoax that that doesn't slow down the aging process? I think there's quite a few things. Uh, unfortunately, some of them are linked to a popular scientist, um, Dave, uh, Dr. David Sinclair, <clears throat> although I don't think I, I you know, I, I don't have any particular specific opinions about him necessarily, but I think that uh, Recently, people have been asking me about NMN, which is a, a nicotinamide mononucleotide. And it's a supplement that, uh, I don't know, it, it, I don't know where the er origin came from uh, other than Dr. David Sinclair. I think he talked about it on Joe Rogan podcast several years ago. Yeah. And um, I was never that interested in it, but people kept asking me and asking me and asking me about, can you cover this, this supplement? And I did. Um, I, I looked over almost every single human study that's been done on the topic. And you can see the, the full breakdown. It's good over two hours long. So it's, it's, it's quite a, a slog, but if you're interested, you can check it out. Um, and just to sort of frame it for the audience, if they don't know who he is, this is, this is David Sinclair. I believe he's 52, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. He looks great. Admittedly. He looks, yeah, great. he looks fantastic for his age. Like, you know, hair, hair color, tone, you know, like skin tone, everything. He looks great. So he's a great salesman for the notion of what he's selling. And, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I, uh, you know, I was taking that for good six or seven months and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think this works. And I started looking at some studies, but carry on. Yeah. Keep, keep enlightening us on that. Sure. Um, so ultimately my conclusion was a lot more subdued than what other people had been talking about. Um, I understand the mechanisms. It, it, it does what it, it's supposed to do in terms from a mechanistic standpoint, but really what we care about is the clinical data. Like what are the actual outcomes that happen to humans? And the outcomes have been really lackluster uh, in my opinion. So I, I'm not saying that it, it doesn't have any effect, but I think it has more of an effect for people that really need it. And for the majority of people, especially people who exercise, especially for people who are just generally healthy, even if they don't exercise, but they're generally healthy, it doesn't seem, at least based on the current data, that NMN has much of an effect at all. So, I, you know, which, like I said, it was just a total surprise to me considering the the amount of obsession about that that supplement. So that's one. Um, another one that is also tied to Dr. Sinclair. Again, I'm not necessarily uh, bad mouthing him necessarily, but it's just he's he's just one of the people that's been talking about a lot. Was a resveratrol. Um, that's another one that that 
I haven't done nearly as much of a deep dive into that, but uh, I've heard, and just from the few studies that I've kind of skimmed over, uh, that doesn't seem to be nearly as effective as it was initially claimed as well. Um, another one that pops to mind is something that I'm currently investigating. Uh, so breaking news, um, I'm going to have, I'm going to have a video releasing on this. Your, your life and a, um, is, is another supplement that people have been asking me about. And it's supposed to, the idea behind it is that it's supposed to improve mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and I pulled all the human studies on that and I just finished, uh, reading, I think like 80% of them. And, again, it's just the data is just so weak. It's it's like there's maybe a little bit something there, but it's just not going to make a major difference. So I would say those three, and I'm sure if I if I sat down and really thought about it, I could come up with plenty more. Mm. Yeah, I, I've, you know, I was real interested in David Sinclair, and I watched quite a few of the podcast interviews that he did. Um, I've got HGH and peptides on my list of stuff to talk to uh, Nicholas about, so we'll get to that in a bit. Um, and I think one of the things that attracted me to it was, you know, the anti-aging, um, you know, component, which was supposed to deal with things like graying, you know, because my beard's graying, obviously. Um, and it turned out it didn't do anything, but it turned out that uh, copper tends to be more of a deciding factor with um, hair pigment color versus NMM. And... You know, when I was getting my blood labs pulled, I had my guy throw copper on the list and it's like, okay, my copper is always low. So I tried supplementing with a copper supplement. My body doesn't absorb that when I'm trying something else. So I just want to see if I can modify this to bring it back to the blonde, like the dirty blonde that I had versus the gray. But yeah, it didn't do jack for me, um, you know, if I'm being honest. But those are the hoaxes. So which ones actually affect change in our life and slow down the aging process as you've seen in some studies now that you've analyzed them? Yeah, so there's there's a few that have a great amount of evidence behind them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go through five. I've got mm -hmm. uh, some notes here. Okay. So I've got five, um, which is funny actually. When I called in <laughs> to your to your podcast, uh, the you know a few months ago, um, <laughs> I had written out three of them, and then the the caller right before had mentioned two of them, yeah. <laughs> which uh, which really robbed me of my 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 thunder. But anyway, um, so. The first one, which I'm sure a lot of people are really uh, aware of, is creatine. Yeah. That one has hundreds, I mean, literally hundreds of studies behind it. And it's uh, it's incredibly efficacious. I think one area that people don't talk about, though, is that there's new research coming out on creatine specifically for uh, memory and its effects on our brain. Yeah. Um, so beyond what we I've typically... I've seen Ben Greenfield talk about that a few times now. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, so I looked over that literature and uh, it seems like creatine has a beneficial impact on our nervous system as a whole. So no matter who it is, everybody gets a benefit from creatine on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's going to be always exceptions like people that have specific conditions. It might not work or it may worsen things. But by and large, we're talking about the average person. Um, so creatine has an effect on the nervous system. It has an additive effect on memory in people who are older. So people who are over the age of 65. Um, so that's, that's one supplement. Of course, that has, it also has tremendous effects on our, our musculature as well. Um, the next one is uh, curcumin, which has a good amount of research behind it. I've all, I've, been focused mainly on the research on uh, diabetes risk and prediabetes, so preventing prediabetes and preventing diabetes. And curcumin actually has some really powerful uh, effects when it comes to protecting us from diabetes. That said, uh, from that standpoint, it's actually not that effective for people who are already healthy. Um, and I think from an inflammation standpoint, it could have positive effects all around. Does it affect uh, the C-reactive protein numbers on your blood labs? Yeah, it does. It has uh, quite an effect on a, a number of different inflammatory markers. Do you know what, uh, what daily dosage you'd have to take for that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've got 500 milligrams. Some studies go up to 1,500 milligrams a day. Yeah. It's not um, toxic at high dosages anyway, so you could take 500, 1,000. You'd probably be fine. No, not that I'm aware. And of course, the studies, usually they don't, they, I shouldn't say usually, they never use a dose that's going to end up being toxic to people. Right. What um, about the creatine monohydrate? What was the, what was the dose in the studies for that? 
So for women, it's three grams for men, it's five grams. Um, mm. I think as more research comes out, there's several studies that have used much higher levels, use 20 grams a day. And, um, I think the reason why is because the penetration. So when, when we consume creatine, our body stops producing creatine. And I, I know the first question that comes to people's minds as well, then is that a good really? thing? Um, yeah. I thought we got creatine from meats, from organ meats or from, um, tissues. No, we do that. We do that as well. Yeah. Okay. That's absolutely true. But, um, but our bodies can manufacture it too. Yeah. Our liver okay. and our kidneys uh, send molecules back and forth to one another that ultimately create creatine. Then that gets absorbed within our musculature and obviously the other tissues as well. Okay. And uh, actually our brain has its own unique creatine production system. And that's actually why they, a few studies have used 20 grams is because they think that uh, to saturate the brain with creatine, um, you have to consume more than the typical muscle centric five grams. So that's, that's been the idea, but, um, that hasn't actually been verified yet. So, um, as it stands, the, the studies that I've seen have shown an effect at five grams. If there's a, an additive, an even better effect at 20 grams, I don't know that yet. And nobody does. Okay. Um, the next one is fish oil. So, uh, 800 milligrams to about a gram, uh, specifically. So what I focused on for fish oil was to look at the effects that it has on the brain. Um, so protective effects also on memory, um, and our ability to learn language, just like overall plasticity, neuroplasticity of the brain and specifically focusing on DHA over EPA, not to say that EPA doesn't have positive effects, but our brain is has much, much, much higher. I think it's like 90% uh, DHA and much less EPA. So focus in the studies, therefore focused a lot more on DHA and they tended to find more of an effect if uh, people focused on uh, DHA consumption. So do you know who um, the author of Esther Generation is, Dr. Anthony J? No, but I've heard you speak about him, I think. I've had him on my channel twice, and I've used him to analyze my DNA, which is something I'll get get to in a minute when I get to my other talking points. But he, but he did mention that when he was in school, they were analyzing um, the chemistry and the makeup of human brains. And I think he, it was an outrageous number, something like 80 or 90% of the human brain is basically DHA. Um, so fish oils are like not just building block, but it's necessary for your brain to operate in his estimation. I'm, a, I'm guessing that you would say the same. Uh, absolutely. Um, is there a source of fish oil that you'd recommend? Cause I mean, the problem with fish in the sea that I came across is mercury content. There was a time when I was consuming loads and loads of tuna and my mercury levels went through the roof when I was doing my blood labs and mm. the you know, doctor's like, well, what have you been eating? I said, well, I've been eating a lot of tuna because my trainer wanted me to up my protein. And I wanted a convenient way. So I would go to Costco and get these frozen tuna pokey packs. And I was legit eating like two packs of these tunas per day for about four weeks. And my, and my mercury level went through the roof. He's like, it's an old fish, old fish in the sea have shitloads of mercury and metals in it and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. is there a source of fish oil that you'd recommend or even krill oil? Like, is there one that's better than the other based on what you've studied? No, I don't. Uh, I don't know that much about different brands. But what I can say is, uh, if you go to Consumer Labs, um, I don't know if you're a member there, but it's really cheap subscription. They actually do all the independent testing. So they actually have a lab where they do all the independent testing, okay. and they they check for mercury in, in all the fish oils that they. Uh, so they all the try. products are on the shelf. If you have a membership, then it'll tell you and it'll rank it, sort of thing. Yeah, they'll, they'll rank it. I mean, they test, I don't know, like maybe 30 different brands. They test them every like few years just to make sure that they're staying up to, to standard. Um, they check for mercury, they test check for arsenic, they check for a bunch of different things. And then they'll give you like three recommendations uh, oh. for, for what they, they, they think would be uh, beneficial. Okay. Um, so I'll have to look into that. So that's one, two, three. What's number four? Uh, Glynac, which is actually the one that I had mentioned uh, to you at one point. Um, what was so Glynac again? It was uh, glycine plus N-acetylcysteine. Yeah. So glycine plus NAC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Glynac, the the studies on Glynac have been really impressive, G just genuinely impressive, from a really great research group out of Baylor um, School of Medicine and. 
I was I was blown away, and uh, that's actually one of the videos that did really well on my channel. Um, just because going over the literature it was just metric after metric after metric improved with Glynax supplementation, but the the reason why I say but is because I I think that Glynax is probably only going to be effective for people who are a little bit older. So all the studies were done in people that were in their 70s and they saw mm. a tremendous benefit. So again, kind of like the creatine situation with memory, I think that Glynac is probably going to be most beneficial for people in their 60s and 70s and beyond. What sort of benefits were 70 year olds getting from it? Oh, massive. It was all over. So uh, they did some biochemical measures of mitochondrial function. They saw, they experienced betterment in mitochondrial function, which translates to better ability to use fat for uh, metabolism. So they experienced the betterment in their, their ability to use fat, which also translates typically to uh, better insulin sensitivity, which they also found in really dramatic effects. Mm -hmm. They found better uh, grip strength, uh, muscle performance in general, uh, in muscle endurance. Like, and that's just like a small subset of the things that they tested. There are only a few things that didn't improve, like, uh, uh, I think like triglycerides and cholesterol or something like that. But mm. uh, most of the measures that they looked at really did improve substantially. What were the dosages and at what time of the day did they dose them? Do you know? So the time of the day, they just took it with meals, if I remember correctly, uh, mm. just to avoid an upset stomach, mainly because it's extremely acidic. Um, but the dosages that they used were absolutely astronomical. They were like something like six grams, I want to say seven grams for each. Um, and there have been some other studies that have used NAC or N-acetylcysteine at lower dosages and seen positive effects. So um, what I've been trending towards, uh, what I told my dad at least, and my, my grandparents is that uh, probably aiming for a smaller dose is probably going to be fine because we, mm. we don't actually know. We only have three studies on the topic. Um, so, and although they're, they're fantastic studies, uh, we don't actually have like an upper limit or a lower limit. It, it's possible that we could get all these benefits from one gram a day. You know, we just don't know. So, um, and the other thing with Glynac is that because it's one research group and as any scientist would say, you, you kind of want to see it replicated. Mm -hmm. That said, it's not, you know, some random lab in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's a pretty reputable lab. So I've... what's the, um, um, like, are there any side effects to it? Any like damage to organs? Any, like, does it tax your kidney values or anything? Or was it just totally fine throughout? Yeah, there was a, there was one concerning trend with Glynac. Um, I say somewhat concerning because, well, I'll get to it. So the, the one concerning trend was that there was an increase in ALT, which is an enzyme that's uh, found in your liver. And if you start seeing a lot of that uh, expressed or, or released, I should say, in the, the bloodstream, and that's typically a sign that you're experiencing some level of liver toxicity. Mm. However, uh, the the rise was the actual delta. So from before taking Glynac to after taking Glynac uh, over, I think like, I don't know, several months, like four or six months, something like that was really small. And additionally, they did other enzyme, uh, other liver enzymes that did not change. Um, so you know, it's just one metric and the other metrics that would kind of have to go along with it uh, didn't change, didn't, it wasn't anything that uh, really caused for concern. So I'm keeping my eye on it, but um, it's, as it stands, it's not like it shot straight up and people were turning yellow or anything like that. Okay. So glycine and NAC. Um, I do remember you mentioning, I, I take that anyway, but I haven't thought about uh, passing it on to my parents because they're elderly now. And, mm. you know, it's like muscles are wasting. They're getting tired all the time. So yeah. if it's got that much of an opportunity to improve their quality of life, then I'm definitely going to get them some. Um, Rizzo, to your question here, I'm a member. Can I can't ask a question? Am I blocked? I haven't blocked you. If I block you, then you can't comment. Um, so, but um, I'm not really sure why you can't ask a question if you're logged in into your account. You should be able to. Um, if you want, here I'll open up my Twitter, and if you want to DM me on Twitter, what your question is, then I'll uh, present it to Nicholas that way. Maybe that'll be a way to get it to him if uh, YouTube's not working. Um, okay, and then number five. Number five, I've got uh, collagen peptides. So I've only I was going to ask you about collagen. 
Okay. Yeah. So I've, uh, I haven't uh, looked at collagen peptides from a joint perspective, but I've looked at it from a skin perspective. And the research, I think I went over almost 20 studies on the topic, and the research is a little dicey. There's some, I guess there's, I'll put it this way, there's a mixture of studies. Some studies are absolute crap, and other studies are decently well done. So my meter, if this is the middle, is leaning towards it's beneficial. So I take uh, five to 10 grams a day, and I think that's probably applicable to anyone. And the benefits are in joint health, skin health, hair health, nail health, like all that stuff. Yeah, that's I've I've specifically looked at skin health, so I know okay. I know for a fact skin health, but uh, the 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 idea is that it also affects uh, joint health as well, hair health for sure, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, um, I I actually take quite a bit of collagen now because I make my own protein pudding out of my uh, beef protein product and a collagen product that I have. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't really like drinking the shakes. They kind of taste too foamy. So what I do is I sort of blend them up, refrigerate them. And because it's got collagen, it turns into like a jello pudding. So it's really good. So I'll just like I'll smash one or two of those a day. So I'm taking quite a bit of that. So that's good. Mm -hmm. All right. So collagen peptides. Um, let's go to workout and recovery. What okay. have you learned in that area? Because I know that you train like you lift. So yeah. Yeah. I've been training for uh has it been 15 years now nonstop it's uh <laughs> it's it's incredibly important um so i have a lot to say on this but I'll, I'll keep it as brief as i can um when it comes to training there's there's a few fundamental things that people have to do if they want to take advantage and you're, you're probably already doing all of them but for anybody listening um one is that you have to constantly be progressively overloading um you have to be improving in some form or fashion if that's by the number of repetitions that you perform, the the, the actual resistance itself, uh, your rest times, whatever it ends up being, just picking a metric and then trying to improve um, from exercise to exercise. Um, so progressive overload is is probably one of the highest tenants that you can that you should always keep in mind. Um, the second one is definitely not going to be new to anyone is going to be lifting compound movements. Um, so we're talking about like a deadlift, squat, bench press, overhead press, pull-ups, things of that nature, just multi-joint mm -hmm. as long as you're not doing uh, dumbbell curls or tricep extensions or whatever. There's nothing wrong with those exercises, but for anybody first starting out or even in your intermediate lifter, they should definitely be focused a lot more on uh, compound lifting. And... The next one is uh, volume is the greatest driver of hypertrophy. So intensity, what I mean by intensity, what I mean by volume, let me explain that real quick. So intensity is just literally the amount of weight that you're lifting. Uh, so the amount of resistance that's on the end of the bar or at the end of the cable or whatever. Um, volume is the actual amount of total work done given a certain amount of time. So let's say if it's within a day, so if you go to the gym and you lift uh, 5,000 pounds total for the day, or you lift uh, 1,000 pounds for your chest, whatever it might be. Um, so, or you can extend it to per week or per month or however you want to do it, it doesn't matter. The point is that you're lifting a certain amount of weight and it has to be over a certain amount of time. And you can use that as a metric. So let's say month one, you were only able, able to lift 8,000 pounds uh, the next month you were able to lift uh, 9,000 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's an intersect between those two in that you can't be doing volume. That's just junk volume. So you have to be putting in enough resistance on the musculature where you are actually stimulating muscle growth. Now, what does enough resistance mean? It's that the science has become really clear on this um, over the last 10, 15 years, that the intensity doesn't matter nearly as much as getting close enough to failure. So what I mean by failure is that you literally just can't lift the weight anymore. So you would want to, let's say if, if your failure reps would be, let's say you can do 12 repetitions of a certain amount of weight. 
if you can get within like up to like 10 or 11 repetitions, just a few reps shy, that's a, that's definitely a good enough intensity that you will see improvements in muscle growth over time, as long as you continue to increase the volume over time. So, so, um, thought here. Okay. So I've got a squat rack in my basement. Um, I've been, I've been going down every 60 to 90 minutes throughout my workday and I'll just go do some squats. So if I'm pushing, you know, let's say 8,000 pounds last month, but in two or three months, I'm, I'm moving 15,000 pounds, uh, but I'm not lifting any more weight or maybe even doing lighter weight. You know, for example, you're saying that as long as I'm stressing the money and money, <laughs> stressing the muscle and moving volume of weight, then that's going to net a better outcome than compound lifts or progressive overloading. No, it would, it would still have to do, it would still have to be compound lifts and it would yeah. still have to be progressive overload, but the progressive right. overload can come through added volume. Okay. So, because it's, it's again, the, the progressive overload is just, am I improving from one week to the next or one month yeah. to the next? So in that scenario, you are improving okay. um, from that month to the next, um, how you do it doesn't really matter as long as you're getting just sufficient intensity and your volume is continuing to rise. Um, that's, but that's again, specific to muscle growth, which doesn't, it's not a perfect correlation with muscle strength. Like, yes, while the muscle size increases, the muscle strength increases as well. Mm. But I'm sure you've seen people that are pretty skinny. Um, they, you know, they, they don't have a ton of muscle on them. They're not like these super jack guys, but they can lift a lot of weight. Mm. Uh, the reason for that is because they, they're focusing on strength or power output, which is uh, far more intensity based as opposed to volume based. So there's, you, you can mix and match these variables, but uh, I know that a lot of people are interested in kind of gaining a little bit of both at the same time, which focusing on volume and then also pairing that with a decent enough intensity where you're, a, you know, getting within about three to, to four reps or closer to, to failure uh, offers the, the best bang for your buck. Um, okay. So that's awesome. Um, any, any hoaxes or anything that, that we've been lied to when it comes to, um, you know, workout recovery, building muscle, it's a total waste of our time. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a, it seems like an unending list. It feels like, um, what are the big ones that pop to, to mind right now? Well, for example, confusing the musculature, like confusing the muscles, that's just total BS. Um, that I just, anybody, no, it's, it, your, your muscles don't get confused. They, they don't have brains. Um, mm -hmm. they, so what do you mean by confusing them? Is that like doing different movements for the same muscle? Like for example, you can do cable, like rope pull downs and then do skull crushers to hit the triceps in a different way. Like, is that what you mean by confusing the muscle? Yeah, I think again, I, I don't, I don't believe in it. So I, you'd have to talk to somebody who actually really believes in it, but mm. uh, which I think now is becoming fewer and fewer people, or maybe I'm just uh, ignoring them. I don't know, but um, it, I think the, uh, the principle is, yeah, you, you're, you're doing one exercise, let's say one week you're doing skull crushers, then the next week you're doing uh, tricep pull down, but you're, you're constantly moving between those two exercises without actually prioritizing, am I improving in these exercises? Mm -hmm. It's just about mixing it up as much as possible. Oh, I didn't get sore so from this exercise. Now I have to move on to another exercise. No, you should, you should still be doing that exercise. Mm -hmm. You should just be continuously trying to improve. And it's fine to switch exercises, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But um, just, again, make sure that you're improving. So. Are there any studies or anything that you've come across that make any recommendations for taking breaks on workouts? Because I've noticed like if you ever have to take a break for a month or something like that and you go back and you first work out, you have like immense amount of soreness and uh, like a positive feeling, you know, from that workout. Is is that something that they've studied? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been studied a lot. So the differences between deload and a, um, a just a complete break uh, the studies are pretty clear on that as well. So it's typically recommended to do a deload, which means that you would be cutting your volume uh, at least in half and you'd be cutting your intensity at least in half. So you're essentially just going in there and just doing movement. You're not even like really, you're, you're lifting the same so weight. So it's a lightweight for like a month or something. Yeah, like it's, it's super easy. I okay. think the deloads are typically supposed to be 
one to two weeks. But honestly, if you were to extend it further, the point is that if you're at least moving the musculature, mm. you have a much higher uh, ability to retain that musculature, even if it's, let's say, a month. Wow, interesting. Okay, well, I hope you guys are getting value from this. If you are, make sure you hit the like button and uh, show a little love and you know subscribe to his channel too. Um, let's go to sexual performance. Um, is that something that you studied? Have you come across any research papers on that? A little bit. Um, I haven't studied this nearly as much, but I, I have I have a few few notes for that as well. So one is, uh, you've mentioned this in a number of your videos, but uh, if you can't see your Johnson, then then that, <laughs> that's that's a big problem. I don't know um, what you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if reducing... you get out of the shower and you look down and you can't see Johnson, you got a problem, boys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Lose that weight. <laughs> So, so reducing body fat is, is a huge one, um, yeah. mainly because obesity and just being overweight has tremendous effects on uh, your, your vasculature. So we think about body fat, but honestly yeah. it has a, a tremendous effect on your vasculature as well. So blood flow can't get to the areas that it needs to. Yeah. Um, the second thing is resistance training. So while, you know, we talk about testosterone, for example, resistance training is an excellent source of pumping up your testosterone as a whole. Typically resistance training individually, uh, when you, when you do a session, your testosterone spikes, and then it comes right back down within about 30 minutes. But overall, just the, the, the fact that you have to put on muscle and maintain that musculature that ultimately has a tremendous effect on your overall testosterone levels, which testosterone free unbound testosterone has tremendous effects on uh like erectile dysfunction has uh sexual uh or libido you know mm. all that stuff so resistance training is a huge one and then for the people that don't want to do either one of those obviously i don't recommend that at all but uh the the other one that i've read one study on this and i i planned on doing a lot more on this but i just haven't gotten around to it is there's a supplement called the red korean ginseng um, which this one study found that this was in, uh, I think men in their forties or fifties, something like that. And they took red Korean ginseng and ultimately found that they had better sexual performance. Um, not like massive differences, but, uh, you know, relatively like, let's say a moderate effect. Um, also erectile dysfunction was, uh, dramatically reduced, not completely eliminated, but certainly better. Um, what was and, the pathway that the red Korean ginseng uh, worked through? Was it nitric nitric oxide or was it something else? Yeah, so they they had a few different uh, few different suggestions. One of them is ex you're exactly right. So it uh, has effects independent of testosterone. It actually increases nitric oxide, which mm -hmm. uh, gets released by the endothelial cells. Those then bind to the smooth muscle cells within our vasculature, specifically around the penis in this situation, and then. It, ex it opens up the, the vasculature so that you can actually have an erection or mm. uh, have, have better uh, vascular flow to the brain as well. Um, and then the other one that they surmised was uh, that ginseng also binds the actual molecule that's, or a molecule, I should say, that's found in ginseng, also binds to what are known as GABA receptors. So GABA mm. is an anxiety-related uh, uh, neurotransmitter. And they don't exactly know if that is one of the main mechanisms, but they do know that it has uh, an effect through that. So I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done on the topic, but um, you know, it's something- Did they, did they compare it to something like uh, L-arginine and L, what's the other one? Carnitine, I think, which are probably the most relied on now for nitric, oxi nitric oxide boosting properties. No, they didn't. Not not in that study. Again, um, yeah. Again, unfortunately, I've only looked at that one study, so it's something I need to look into more. Okay. Was there anything else in that category that's worth talking about, or is that it? No, that's all I've got. Okay. Um, let's do testosterone. That's always a hot topic. Um, optimizing testosterone naturally. What what works? What doesn't work? What have you seen in studies there? Yeah. Okay. So there's this one supplement that again, a lot of people have talked about, uh, or at least it was popular maybe a year ago called Tonkat Ali. Mm -hmm. Um, that I looked at every single study on Tonkat Ali. 
um, along with a, a meta-analysis, which is a grouping of all the studies together. And I had some severe criticisms of, of those studies for, for reasons that I won't go into here. But mm -hmm. um, ultimately, my conclusion was that if you are deficient in testosterone, again, context matters with all these situations, just like we've talked about with creatine, curcumin, glynac, all that stuff. But context really matters. So Tonkat Ali seems to be potentially beneficial for people that have lower testosterone. Um, there's a slight bump up in their testosterone levels, again, based off of limited data. Um, however, if you're in the normal testosterone range, which actually extends pretty low down, we're talking about like, I think like 300 nanograms per deciliter, something like that. Mm. Um, and upwards, Tonkat Ali seems to have basically no effect. And there's also a study that looked at resistance training compared to Tonkat Ali and resistance training increased testosterone just as much, if not a little bit more than Tonkat Ali. Mm. And then they, tr they actually combined them to see, okay, well, what would happen if we combine both of them had no effect. So, um, resistance training was a far more potent way to, to increase testosterone. Do they like specifically test a specific type of resistance training, like com like heavy compound movements, like squatting, you know, for example, versus bicep curls, or was it just resistance training in general? Yeah. So typically the researchers will focus more on compound lifts. Every mm -hmm. once in a while you have researchers that don't really know what they're doing when it comes to that stuff. They, they should probably, uh, talk to, uh, you know, an exercise physiologist or a, a personal trainer or something, or just a, a, a doctorate in, in, um, in uh, physical exercise, but uh, most studies focus on compound lifts. Uh, and I believe these studies did focus on, I think it was like the squat and the bench press or something yeah. like that. I think I came across something when I was a lot younger. Um, what the hell was his name? Tom, Tom Platts. Uh, oh was, yeah. He was known for his enormous, ridiculously clown-like quads. Like he had massive legs. And one of the things he was saying that he used to do like intense sprinting, like like not 200 yards, 100, but like 50, like just 100% power and then just stopping. And he cited a study. I never looked it up or, or tried to find it, so I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently they studied this where you do like explosive sprinting and that's supposed to improve your testosterone production. Have you seen anything like that? Uh, I haven't looked into those studies, but I could, I would, I would bet money that it's probably true. I mean, high intensity interval training of that sort, you know, high intensity interval training comes in all kinds of different forms. You can, you can have, as you described, you know, going, you know, maybe a hundred meters, 200 meters, but yeah. you can have even shorter, like Tabata, for example, as, as an example, where they do really, really short bursts. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of like a halfway point between endurance exercise and resistance training. So it's an excellent source of, of yeah, getting that combination. What do you think of Fedoja Agrestis? I think that was popularized by Huberman. He was talking about it a few times and apparently it's got some positive properties, but I've also heard that it, uh, it's somewhat toxic if you use it over a longer period of time. Yeah, I'll be honest. I have no idea. I haven't looked at those studies at all. Um, Tribulus, do you have any take on that? No, not another one studies? that I haven't looked into. No. Okay. Um, anything else around optimizing testosterone that you've come across that might be worth mentioning or that's useful? Uh, well, I can definitely say that most testosterone boosters, not all of them, but, uh, most of them, at least kind of uh, commercially available ones don't, don't tend to do much at all. So, um, yeah, I think it just depends on the ingredients that they use. Um, again, it's something that I have to look into far more. But in terms of optimizing testosterone, you've even discussed them in, in, in your videos uh, mm -hmm. multiple times. Like get enough sleep, uh, make sure that you're resistance training, like lower your body fat. Like all those have Zinc, vitamin DK. Effect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All that stuff. Yeah, those are all the foundational stuff that you want to sort of deal with. Um, you know, I tell guys to start tracking this stuff. Like, I reckon by the time you're about 30, you should be doing this on an annual basis, getting a full blood panel, including all your hormones. So it's like, as you kind of age, you start to look for patterns. And if there's a pattern of the declining, uh, like a systematic declining levels in your hormones or changes that aren't favorable, then you could contemplate things like TRT and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, there are things that you can do and I've already mentioned that a million times. There's lots of videos on my channel where I talk about sleep and optimizing sleep and ways to fix that. Um, okay. We talked about N NMM, uh, Sinclair, 
Uh, oh, peptides. Somebody brought up peptides earlier too. Uh, HGH and peptides. I saw a video on your channel before we were talking where there was an anti-aging stack that proved uh, very promising, which I think included HGH, zinc, DHEA, metformin. I think those were the main compounds, was it? Yeah, zinc, metformin, HGH. Uh, DHEA. DHEA and vitamin D, I think, was the other one. Yeah, vitamin D yeah. is like 3,000 IU, which is a very low dose still. Yeah. Um, so actually, let's talk about that then because that's kind of an anti-aging stack that you haven't men mentioned yet. So sure. has your position changed on that at all? Because it sounded like you were pretty favorable on the on that stack and the outcome of that study. Yeah, so so what we're talking about is the, the TRIM study, um, which came out in 20. 19, I want to say something like that, maybe 2016. Um, so T-R-I-I-M. Um, so th the main objective of this study was to try to reverse what's known as uh, thymic involution. So there's a, you have a thymus, um, which is uh, an organ that's highly involved or a gland that's highly involved in uh, your immune system. And when we go from a kid all the way, you know, throughout our lives, uh, our thymus starts to go through a process called involution, where it uh, becomes fat. So it goes from a from the actual tissue, the thymic tissue, where you have the uh, exchange of different molecules for your T cells. That's why it's called they're called T cells, thymic, um, where you have this. Uh, excitation of the T cells, and then the T cells can then mature and, you know, defend your body. Well, as we get older, that, that thymus gets fattier and fattier and fattier. And then around the age of 60, 65, it just, it, it goes super rapid. It's like within a year or two, the rest of it just turns straight to fat. So what these researchers wanted to do is like, okay, well, if we give this stack that we have some suspicion is going to have some positive effects, what's going to happen? And they gave this stack to a really small sample of, of individuals all in their 60s. And what they were able to do is actually they found that they were able to reverse this process. So they were able to, to make the thymus go from fat to back to its thymic uh, situation of the actual gland itself, which is crazy cool. I mean, and from a biological perspective to be able, because if you're going from fat back to lean tissue, the actual uh, thymus, um, that means that the cells in that area have to essentially reverse um, because fat tissue is is actual fat cells with, with fat uh, molecules in them. So that was one thing that they did. The other thing that they did, which was really fascinating, is that they looked at a number of different epigenetic clocks, which is becoming more and more popular as more research is coming out on them. Um, they're not perfect, but they, they're, they're an interesting and cool uh, instrument to measure uh, chronological age versus biological age. And what they found is that just from, I forgot exactly how long the study was, but- Is this um, one of the telomeres? It could tell, well, no, it's not, uh, it's not on telomeres, but it could tell you a little bit of information on telomeres as well. Um, so what they found is that when, when these people were taking this uh, HDH or the stack in general, that they saw a, I believe it was 6.5 year reversal of age. So, and this was only after, again, a number of weeks. I can't remember exactly how long it was, maybe eight weeks, 12 weeks, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that got them really excited. And it was so well handled, actually, that they're doing a new one, a new study called the TRIM-X study, which is now uh, with more individuals. And uh, I think that's going to be published in at the end of 2024. I think the end of next year is when the, the results of that are going to be coming out. Remind us again. So the stack was DHEA, 50 milligrams, vitamin yeah. D, 3000 IU, metformin, 500 milligrams. Yep. HGH was based on body weight, I think it was. Do you know what that was? It was like yeah. 0. 0.0125 or something like that? Yeah, it's like 0. 0.015 or something like that. But I, I can't remember the units and that it's going to be a, a drastic consequences if we get the units it's wrong. In, so it's in Nick's video. You can go to his channel and um, search for it because the... Uh, there was five though. I've got four on my list. Was there a fifth one? 
Yeah, there was. Which ones did you have? DHEA, DHEA vitamin D, metformin, HGH. Zinc was Zinc, the other, was the other one, 50 milligrams. 50 milligrams a day, yeah. Yeah, which... and the idea, the idea behind that was, um, so the, the DHEA was actually there to control the negative effects of HGH, because obviously if you just take HGH, yeah. um, there, there are some potentially negative effects like insulin, uh, IGF and all that stuff. Yeah. So they have DHEA there to control that, but they also have metformin there to control the other aspect of insulin sensitivity. So those two aren't probably aren't going to actually do anything for the actual uh, age reversal effects. It's the HGH itself plus vitamin D and zinc. Um, so zinc is cheap. Uh, vitamin D is cheap. DHEA is cheap. You can get all the shit in the States. Um, if you're in Canada, you can't get DHEA. You have to have a prescription for it. Um, metformin, you need a script for it. Um, there's an alternative to metformin. It's a plant-based one. What the hell is it called? It's, um, berberin. Berberin. That's it. Yeah. Is berberin just as effective as metformin in your opinion? I think it's a little less effective, but I think that the drawbacks of it, I think, are a little bit less uh, as well. So okay. I, I need to look into it more. I've, I've skimmed a few studies, but it seems promising. Yeah. And then you've got HGH, which is expensive as fuck um, <laughs> yeah. if, if you're going to inject it. Um, it's funny, though, because my, you know, my doctor checks my labs. And when I first started using them, like six or eight months in, he added um, human growth hormone to the blood panel. It's, it's an expensive test. So he's like, yeah, I'll just check it like once a year. And he checked and he, and then I went and sat down with him and he accused me of using HGH. He's like, you know, are you getting something from somewhere? Cause your levels are real high. Like what's going on? I'm like, no, I don't. Um, so we, so we sort of talked about it and did some Googling and it turns out like lifting heavy shit and putting it down actually helps your body produce more growth hormone. So mm -hmm. free version of that pick up heavy shit and put it down. Heavy compound movements will appear. Well, it worked for me. So I'm not saying it's going to work for you, but DHEA, vitamin D, zinc, and berberine, you can get easily from wherever you want. And you're going to have to turn up your body's ability to make HGH by picking up heavy stuff and putting it down would be my recommendation. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about peptides because somebody brought up peptides. Uh, they brought up HGH, which we've just dealt with. So what are your, so what's your opinion on peptides? Have you seen any studies on that stuff? Yeah, a little bit. I haven't looked into this too much either. Um, again, I keep saying that, but as a one-man operation, it's tough to, to go over all this stuff. Um, so I've looked at BPC-157 a little bit. Um, I've used so, that. I found that it was very helpful. Yeah, so I, I haven't looked at any human trials on that, but I, I went over a review and they looked... They mentioned several positive effects uh, yeah. in preclinical pre trials. Specifically, um, it has tremendous effects on angiogenesis, so the actual birth of new blood vessels, yeah. so that uh, wherever you end up placing it, uh, the blood vessels end up migrating to that area, so you get better blood flow, and which, of course, for recovery is an absolute godsend. Yeah. Um, I use it to fix my knee. There's, It's, it's not impossible to get it's not like you can walk in your walmart and buy it you have to get it from one of these websites and sometimes you have to pay with the e-transfer bitcoin or whatever but um there's videos out there that show you how to use it it works uh, sorry it, it's it's worked on me it helped me out tremendously um there's lots of other peptides tb500 there's um epitalin have you seen anything on any of the other peptides no, no i haven't what do you think about that uh, new fat loss injectable that's like all the rage right now, semaglutide or something like that? What's it called? Uh, Monjorin, I think, is the pharmaceutical brand. Have you seen anything on that? I've heard people say that, yeah, you you do like you get lighter, but you're also getting fatter at the same time. It's like you lose muscle mass, but you're also losing weight, too. Hmm. Yeah, I'm actually, um, I'm one, I've read 10 studies on this. This is one of my other videos that's going to be coming out soon. Mm -hmm. um, so I've looked at this from every angle, uh, you know, its effects on inflammation, weight loss, fat loss, uh, diabetes, all kinds of different areas. Um, so there's, there's a number of them. There's Wigovi, Ozempic, uh, forgot the one that you mentioned, but that's also a popular one. And those are the, the common names for like liraglutide and semaglutide and all mm -hmm. those, you know, kind of fancy terms. Um, so they all have different levels of effectiveness, but they do, they are, I will say they're extremely effective at weight loss, at uh, fighting off diabetes, um, at 
reducing inflammation. And I, I don't think that they specifically, I don't think it's a direct mechanism like you take this and then suddenly it has a direct effect on inflammation. I think that people it doesn't seem like it's weight. a drug that does it. It seems like it's the fasting that improves like the, um, yep. autophagy that like improves yeah. your chemistry and your organ health and all that. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, yeah. uh, I think the reason is because you take the molecule, it affects your satiety and then you stop eating nearly as much. And then mm -hmm. that's what actually has a tremendous effect. Now, in terms of if it makes you uh, lose weight, but but fatter and whatnot. So um, like the skinny fat kind of condition. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I looked, I haven't run across any literature on that, but I've heard from, for example, uh, Dr. Peter Atia. I think Atia said it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he had mentioned that. And that's actually what turned me on to like, oh, I need to look into this. I'm going to still look for some other studies um, for, for that because I'd like to see actual body composition changes because the studies that I've looked at have just looked at weight loss, just mm -hmm. straight weight loss. So they haven't actually like distinguished between those. But um, I, think, I think that they're a net good for people who genuinely have serious trouble losing weight. Um, but do I think that everybody should be using them? No, absolutely not. I think that, of course, every other method, you know, resistance training, losing fat through nutrition, using supplements like that, I think that's going to have tremendous, way, way better results than than this could ever have. Um, talk about cancer and starving it away. I've seen you cover that a little bit. Yeah, that's a tricky topic. Um, that's, that's a topic that I... I need to humble myself to be honest with you um, because I actually uh, got reached out to by the, the the researcher that's like the the number one person on this very topic. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'd like to do a podcast with him, but I, I need to figure out exactly how I'm going to do it because I need to be really responsible with it. So to, to talk about a little bit, um, the idea is that there's this, this small group of researchers that believe that uh, cancer actually arises from mitochondrial dysfunction. So that you have uh, defunct mitochondria where they can't oxidize fat. They can't, uh, they can't use fat for energy. Mm. So they rely on this process called the Warburg effect, which a lot of people know about that are, you know, kind of a little bit aware of this process where you're your cells use glucose, they use sugar for energy production. And if cells, the idea is that if cells end up having this dysfunctional mitochondria plus the Warburg effect, uh, then they become cancerous, they become more cancerous. And there's, there's, a, there's some evidence for that phenomenon. Um, however, the bulk of the research is using, it follows the somatic theory, which is the idea that if you have mutations that occur to the genes, then that's what actually leads to cancer. So it's kind of a, a, a debate back and forth. I mean, the somatic theory has way, way more researchers behind it. Um, but, you know, I still find it interesting, the, the idea of being able to metabolically affect cancer. I do think that that's possible. I think a lot of researchers would agree, but I think that they would also say, and even this researcher, who's like the number one on, on this topic, he even acknowledges that you have to use particular drugs to dampen. Uh, so I guess to, to real quick explain this, if the cancer cells are using glucose, the idea that a lot of people have is, okay, well then I'll just stop eating sugar. I'll stop eating carbohydrates go straight ketogenic, and therefore, then I'll kill all the cancer. The problem with that is that cancer cells are really devious. They, they have, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a really tricky disease to, to treat. And doing that may be one way, but the problem is that cancer cells adapt by starting to use another metabolic pathway called, uh, glutaminolosis. It's kind of a, a, a jumbled word, but they're taking glutamine, which is an amino acid and using that for energy production. And so, and we can't stop consuming glutamine. Plus our, our body's going to end up uh, having to use it as well. So what, uh, or we produce it. So what cancer researchers are trying to do is try to knock down glutamine uh, in the body through drugs and then put people on a ketogenic diet. And there's some evidence that that does work. However, 
The reason why I'm being extremely cautious is one, because I haven't looked at nearly enough literature to be able to say one is better than the other. But the other aspect is the fact that um, it's, it's, there's, there's some cancers that actually thrive on fat. So imagine if you're a person who thinks that that's the case, that if I just cut out carbohydrates, I switch to fat, you have potentially just supercharged the cancer that you were trying to eliminate because you had this belief. And so it's, it's very heterogeneous. It really depends on which type of cancer that you're talking about. There's, there's so many variables. It's a really tricky area. Yeah, it's a complex one then. Okay. Um, you know what a lot of guys get hung up on is is height. And I've and I've heard some mumbling about uh, influencing growth um, in the teen years with a certain cocktail. Is this anything that you've ever come across? Not something I've come across, but from a physiological standpoint, it, that would make some sense. I mean, your growth, uh, once your growth plates, if your growth plates are still open uh, where they haven't turned um, to a different tissue, then it, I suppose it would be possible. But okay. um, that's just from a theoretical perspective, mechanistic right. standpoint. Um, are there any specific uh, blood markers or labs that you would recommend people should look at or check on a regular basis that they may not be aware of or sitting in their blind spot? Yeah, in the blind spot, maybe not. Um, well, I guess I do have a few. I think uh, looking at inflammatory markers can be beneficial at times too, like looking at um, not, not the actual cell. So a lot of blood tests will look at like a CBC, will look at your white blood cells, leukocytes, uh, macrophage, all that stuff. Mm. Um, but what costs extra is to look at um, like interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, uh, TNF-alpha, like those kinds of, these are molecules that get secreted by your body. Mm -hmm. And if you have really high levels of these, they, they have wide reaching effects. They have direct effects on insulin sensitivity. They have direct effects on, uh, on blood pressure, on your uh, inflammation, your immune system, how it's reacting to things. So um, are these somehow influenced or tied to C-reactive protein or homocysteine or any of those things? Yeah, so C-reactive protein is a far more, especially uh, high-sensitive uh, HS uh, C-reactive protein is a lot more of a global measure, as in it, it's, uh, I believe it's secreted by the liver, um, and it's a global measure of inflammation, but it doesn't quite get at the crux of certain inflammatory profiles like these these other uh inflammation uh, molecules called cytokines get released from, from, from the cells, because those are directly or almost... They're, they're typically associated with the actual immune cells themselves secreting these molecules as opposed to C-reactive protein, which would be a tissue. And why is it important for people to track the inflammatory markers in their body? Well, inflammation tracks with, it's basically, uh, I don't want to say it's a prerequisite, but it, it, it tracks. I'll just say it correlates extremely well with almost every disease known to man. I mean, obesity, diabetes, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, cancer. I mean, just name it, the answer is yes. So, so any dis-ease in your body is going to show up or it's, it's, it's going to like the leading indicator saying is going to be a, a spike in your inflammatory markers. Yeah. Not even a spike. I mean, a, a spike probably wouldn't be that concerning, but if you mm. saw elevated levels and then, you know, six months later, they're still Over a elevated. longer period of time. Yeah there's a, there's something going on there that, you know, maybe you don't have disease yet, but you're fast tracking your way there. Um, yeah. And I think another metric that, uh, people sleep on, which is far better than looking at blood sugar mm -hmm. is to look at HbA1c. So you can do that like once a year. Um, and that's, that's a super precise marker of, um, blood sugar, insulin sensitivity and all the, all, all of that stuff. So H that's, HbA1c. Yeah. Right. I think I had that on my last test. I'm just going to check it as I'm asking you the next question. Sure. Um, best types of protein. Have you seen any studies done on that as far as absorption, you know, use for muscle growth or anything like that? Yeah, I've done a, I've done a lot of reading on this. Um, so the best type of protein for, there's a number of options actually. When it comes to uh, post-exercise, let's say, or a, let's say we'll call it peri 
exercise. So anywhere around the exercise window, um, focusing on whey protein, which is obviously the fast digesting, it's uh, high in leucine content. It has all the amino acids that you might need. Um, but additionally, if you didn't want to do whey protein, if you wanted to stick to, you know, avoiding supplements, you could certainly do any sort of whole meat. If that's chicken, if that's beef, whatever it is, um, or eggs. Um, and then pre-sleep is another area that a lot of people miss. Uh, pre-sleep, you actually don't want to be consuming whey protein. You want to be consuming its cousin, which is casein protein. Because casein protein, uh, the, the digestion profile for whey protein is just straight up and then straight back down. Um, so it gets digested and, and taken up extremely quickly. But casein protein takes four to five hours for it to for it to climb over time now the problem with casein protein is you typically have to consume more of it to get to that to that muscle protein synthesis peak mm -hmm. so you typically want to consume uh 40 to 50 grams of casein protein before sleep as opposed to whey protein where you can top out especially if you're in your 20s 30s and 40s uh at 20 to 30 grams of of uh, whey protein Whey, the source is milk. Casey and the source is egg, if if I remember correctly, right? I think I think they're both milk, actually. But don't quote me on that. You might be right. Okay. Um, yeah, I used to. Um, I mean, when I was really into bodybuilding in my twenties, I <laughs> I was fastidious about it, man. I would I would have my Casey and protein shake in the middle, not in the middle of the night, but before I would go to bed, and yeah, that was supposed to you know tie you over until the uh, morning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah, there's that. Um, and I guess before we wrap up, um, I want to ask you about, uh, things like DNA analysis. Do you have any experience or seen any studies on that or do you know much about it? Yeah. Well, DNA analysis is a, is a huge part of the field. Uh, absolutely. Um, I don't know, I haven't looked into any of the personal ones that people use nowadays, but I imagine that they follow the exact same formula as what we use in the lab. So, yeah, it's incredibly popular. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay, so I got so it's so it's hemoglobin A one C H B A one C. Is that right? That's right. Yep, that's it. Okay, my markers are good for that. Cool. Um, all right, so dude, we've covered a lot. I hope you guys got some value out of this uh, podcast. Uh, Nick's got a great channel. Uh, awesome dude. Very well versed. Looks like he's. He's going uh, big places. He's probably going to be the next Andrew Huberman if he keeps going at this Ooh. rate. So um, I wish you all the best in your career and your channel and, you know, what you're doing. Um, do you want to give people anywhere where they can find you aside from your YouTube channel or just make that the starting point? No, that's it. I mean, go there if you're impressed. Cool. And if not, then leave a, leave a hate comment and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll ban you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for watching guys. Uh, throw a comment below, you know, do all that stuff and the, uh, likes, uh, quick reminder, the second edition of my, uh, book is available on, uh, Friday. Uh, it's been updated and you can pre-order now. Um, the link will be in the description. And if you're on my email list, I sent you an email about it earlier this week, but check that out. Thanks again, Nick. We'll